Welcome to Sound of Truth Weekly Interview, where we have conversations with ordinary people to learn how our extraordinary God is at work in people's lives and in the world today. I'm your host, Brett Morani, and I'm excited you've joined us. I have in the studio here with me, Kyle Brady. Okay, so if there's ever been a weekly interview in which I feel like I've got to stretch the meaning of how God is at work in the lives of ordinary people, it would be this particular episode. Kyle is a retired NFL player, spent several years with the Jacksonville Jaguars. He also uh, played his college football at Penn State University, where his senior season, they went undefeated and yet did not get a chance to play for the national title, which not only irks Kyle, I'm sure, but it also irks me as a college fan. So we'll talk maybe a little bit more about that probably in our next episode. But this is the second professional football player we've had on, or former football player we've had on Sound of Truth Weekly Interview. But this is a first in this episode, in that it's the first time we've had a former NFL player and an NFL owner on the podcast in the same episode. Now, some of you are wondering, where's the owner? That would be me. I am one of the owners of the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, so, I see. Is that your shareholders? Uh, well, that was the letter. I've got letter the certificate framed at home. So That's very impressive. Yeah. The Packers, I think that is such a amazingly storied franchise, as everyone that follows football knows. Yeah. And uh, what a, an amazing place to play. I really enjoyed having the opportunity as a Jaguar to go up to Green Bay, Wisconsin, and play against the Packers. And of course, what's the best time of year to go play in Green Bay? December or go January. the snow or the freezing exactly. weather. Right? So we went up there and it was a minus eight wind chill. Uh, <sighs> and actually no Florida team had gone into Green Bay when the temperature was below, let's say it was 25 degrees and won a game in years. Yeah. This was during the Brett Favre year prior to Aaron Rodgers. Okay. And uh, we actually went up there and pulled off a win. We played very well. Fred Taylor ran for, I think, 190 yards or so. And yeah. I was proud to be able to open some holes for him that night. And uh, we had a great time going up there and taking it to the Packers on their home turf at Lambeau. That's awesome. This, those are my two teams, the Jaguars in the AFC, the uh, Packers in the NFC. Now, Who do I you just, root for, though, when I, we play each other? That's well, the I try to avoid that and not, not look. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm one of these guys that, you know, I try to look optimistically. One of my teams, I'm going to win no matter You're what. Win regardless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, uh, so anyhow, yeah, I, I want to have a little fun with that because here's the deal: it only took me a few hundred dollars to become an NFL owner. It took you a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and a lot of work to become an NFL player. So, there's no doubt about that. But there's welcome so to Sound of Truth Weekly Interview. You went ahead and do- dove in there, and I appreciate that. But Kyle, good to have Thanks. you here. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah. I appreciate it. Let me go ahead and introduce you a little bit more to Kyle. Kyle is married to Christy. They have three children, a couple of teens and a preteen. They also live here in Jacksonville, made that their home since Kyle's playing days. Kyle graduated from Penn State in 1995 with his degree in exercise physiology, which he put to good use. He spent 13 years playing in the National Football League. He's originally from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and something maybe perhaps many of our guests don't know, even who are followers of college football or the NFL, or the Jaguars. Kyle, after his playing days were over, went back to school and earned his law degree. And now he has passed the bar some years ago and is currently practicing law. Is that correct? You're, 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 you're actually a financial a, analyst affiliated well, with a law I'm firm, affiliated, right? I'm affiliated with a law firm mm-hmm. uh, out of St. Augustine. Um, but um, I more so do real estate finance. Uh, so I got into finance for a couple of years before I went to yeah. law school. And so I've kind of using the combined real estate, uh, real estate law and financial knowledge. I, I, I own and manage a boutique real estate finance firm that uh, partners with local Northeast Florida-based builders and contractors. So let's go ahead and talk about 
the journey of faith. Let's start off with your home environment and particularly the faith aspect of it. Give us a little bit of your story on your parents and your background and yeah, et cetera. So um, I grew up with a uh, you know typical, I don't know, somewhat Midwestern American lifestyle. Even though I grew up on the East Coast uh, in Pennsylvania, primarily, um, my mom and dad. My mom was a nurse, and my dad did um, insurance investigation. So they were well-educated individuals who uh, were doing their best to raise us. Uh, unfortunately, their marriage came apart when I was fairly young, okay. and um, they ended up uh, splitting up when I was around 12. My dad moved to Virginia for a while, so that was difficult as a young man. So um, sure. there were some challenging years for me where I was struggling, you know, with my, you know, as we all do as we go through our teen years with identity and sense of manhood and things like that. And uh, thankfully, there was a high school football coach who came along and acted as a, strong, a good, strong real role, male role model for me. He actually picked me up for school every day my junior and senior year to ensure that I was at school on time and that I was getting my grades right and things of that nature. It's exactly what I need. And I look at back at that now and I see that as God's providence, even though I had mm. not yet come to a, a place of faith in, in Christ. I, I grew up, you know, we grew up um, going to church as a family, you know, as the years went on and things got more difficult, it became a little more of just a holiday thing. Christers, as they call it, you know, go at Christmas and Easter. But um, I always had a sense, even from my upbringing, though, that there there was more to this life than just the here and now, that there was something more meaningful, that there was a God, that uh, you look around and you look at the, the beauty of the world and all the uh, amazing things that, that are created. I mean, you know, Romans chapter one, right, just talks about how mankind can see the glory and the majesty of God just even in the creation. It, mm-hmm. it speaks forth about his, um, what kind of being he is, and that he's altogether different than us. And I, I I think that that was always something I had deeply rooted in my conscience, but it wasn't until college that I actually came to a, a place of uh, faith in Christ, a personal, I guess you'd say, faith in Christ. Those early years, I'm supposing that that divorce was probably the big trial of your childhood. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was difficult. I mean, my, like like most young boys, my dad was kind of my hero, you know, and he was a former professional athlete himself. He played baseball. Um, actually, he I'm first generation American on my dad's side. He was born overseas in the really? UK, and that's the Irish side of my family. I'm okay. 100% Irish on my dad's side. The Brady family lived in the west coast of Ireland in the and in the early 20th century. For people that aren't aware of uh, Irish history, there was a civil war that broke out. There was the Irish Revolution in the early 1920s. Okay. My grandfather and all the men before him were police officers. And mm-hmm. actually, during the revolution, there was tremendous, uh, very similar to actually the United States today, tremendous civil unrest. And um, a lot of the uh, police officers were actually being killed by the early um factions of the early uh, seeds of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. Mm-hmm. So my grandfather and, and great-grandfather being, you know, father, uh, they, they looked around, they said, you know, this is not a good environment for our family. We need to go somewhere. A lot of Irish were leaving and going to the United States. Some went to Australia. My great-grandfather knew of a Irish community just outside of London in the UK in a town called Essex. And now there's many Bradys that I've now become aware of and, and developed relationships with in Essex outside of London. And I've gotten to know a lot of the Bradys actually that's still remained in Ireland, in Galway and Mayo counties, primarily Galway County. That's a whole other subject that I could go on and on about. I'm just curious, did they drop the O? Was it O. Brady originally? It was or? not. No, okay, it was always Brady. And yeah. the name Brady originated in a, a county that's more in central Ireland called Cavan County, C-A-V-A-N. And the Bradys uh, as a clan are historically big people, large people. Okay, yeah. <laughs> they they kind of called them giants. My great-grandfather was born in the 1800s, and he, I believe, was 6'2 or 6'3. I never met him. But um, and my grandfather was also tall, and my dad was about 6'2 or 6'3", and Tom Brady, interestingly enough, uh, 
his clan, you know, his family name goes all the way back to Kevin as well. And he's about my height and I'm six, six, cause obviously we're on the radio and people can't see me. <laughs> yeah. Another part of that different than ordinary. I'd started to, to say that to start, you know, stretching that word ordinary from my introduction to this mm-hmm. podcast, uh, you're six foot six, what? 200 and 280 or so. 280. Yeah. Of muscle. I must Probably say. needs to go. I need to go down about 10 pounds, but yeah, well, thankfully our family has good genetics and I still try to maintain a decent metabolism, but you know, a lot of it's personal daily lifestyle yeah. decisions that help a lot. So your dad was raised in England then? Until he was five years old. Okay. Yeah, he and was, then came uh, to the, the States? UK. Yeah. So interestingly enough, and I won't get too deep into this story because it's a whole mm-hmm. other rabbit hole. Um, he was born to, uh, both parents were, Irish, his, both his parents were Irish, my grandparents, but his mother, my grandmother had American citizenship. Her family had moved to the United States. And, um, and because of that, when the Nazis started bombing London in 1939, the, the Blitz, mm-hmm. uh, with the intention of eventually invading the island. Um, all the young kids uh, were being sent out into the countryside from, right. down, from the city of London. C.S. Lewis, Witch in the Wardrobe. Exactly. Yeah. He had some of those children at his estate, you know, yeah. north of London. And uh, so you know the story well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so because of my dad's mother having uh, American citizenship as an alternative to being shipped out into the countryside while these bombings were occurring, and my dad remembers, you know, being in a bomb shelter with his dad and his grandfather mm-hmm. and the whole family. And as a five-year-old, he thinks, oh, this is fun. This is cool. You know, he did totally understand the impacts of it. But um, he, my grandmother went to the American embassy and actually she met Joe Kennedy, uh, John so? F. Kennedy's father, yeah. who was the uh, ambassador, the American ambassador to England at the time, to the UK. Yeah. And uh, she, he ensured her personal passage to um, to the US. Now, uh, the family story goes that, you know, and she, I remember her talking about this, meeting him and how he's a very delightful man and was very helpful. And, uh, but it was kind of a family joke that he he definitely had a propensity and a, uh, an inclination towards attractive females and she was about a five foot ten runaway model type of woman you know okay. as far as her physical yeah. looks so it probably didn't hurt in yeah. regards to her him ensuring that she got safe passage to the u.s oh wow so came over the states and settled i guess in the pennsylvania area maybe or no actually uh, they went to initially to queens which okay. actually ends City. up being yeah. where my dad was pretty much raised even though he was not born there he mm. grew up in maspeth queens and um I grew up going there often because he still had a lot of friends. My mother, mm-hmm. my mother also grew up in Queens, and so we would go back up there pretty often, usually once a summer, and visit New York. And um, and I thought that it was great. I mean, as a young kid going to the big city like that and seeing downtown Manhattan, I never forget driving over the Verrazano Bridge and looking at the skyline of New York from the south. You see the um, Statue of Liberty in the yeah. foreground, and it just was a a great experience. And um, so you come I'll to America in that time, baseball is the sport, the national pastime at that time. So your dad grew up. And fell in love with baseball, I suppose. And I mean, and New York City might have been mm-hmm. the epicenter for oh, yeah. uh, American baseball in some respects because he had three teams: Dodgers, there. Giants, Yankees. You, yeah, you got it. I mean, and all of them were very good. The Yankees won a lot of championships in the fifties. The Dodgers were always rival of mm-hmm. the Yankees. So my dad grew up very much disliking the Yankees. And then there was the, the Giants as well, and all of them had great coaches. So he was a Dodgers guy. Players. He was a Brooklyn Dodger fan, exactly. Okay. I don't. I think you know the part of Queens and Massmouth where he grew up was, I think, right across the river from Brooklyn. So a lot of people were Dodger fans in his neighborhood. Did he embrace the Mets later on, or? You know, interestingly enough, he uh, when the Giants moved, uh, I'm sorry, the Dodgers moved mm-hmm. out of uh, New York and went out to California. He kind of felt like he was without a team, and so when he was married to my mother and they began having kids, I'm the youngest of four. So my my old the oldest is a boy. My brother Mike, Michael, mm-hmm. and um. 
he got my son, him into baseball, his first son into baseball, of course. And my, my brother started liking the Red Sox. My brother had good speed. Ah, he was a good athlete. So yeah. he played outfield. And he really liked this young outfield that the uh, Boston Red Sox had assembled in the late 60s and early 70s featuring um, Fred Lynn, Jim Rice, and yes. Dwight Evans. Well, Yaz would have been yes, he was first base. First yeah. base by that time. I think yep. maybe at one time he played third and that kind of thing. But yeah, so they had some great players back then. So yeah. my dad thought, well, well, that makes sense. My son likes the Red Sox and they're a, a hated rival of the Yankees. And I, I always rooted for a hated rival of the Yankees. So go, I'll become a Red Sox fan with my son. And yeah. but your dad paid, played professional baseball. He did. Yeah. So he signed with the New York Giants because when he was coming out of, uh, he ended up going to high school in Queens and then he went to a, a small military college down a prep school down in Virginia called Massanutten Military Academy. As I had mentioned to you pre-interview, mm-hmm. he was a big Civil War buff, so he thought it'd be a lot of fun to go do a one year of, of prep school in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, ah, which is yeah. one of the heartlands yeah. of, of American Civil War history. And sure. so many battlefields there, Stonewall Jackson and so forth. So it turns out um, he went down there and after he uh, finished his time, he was being highly highly recruited or sought after by the major league franchises. I have all kinds of letters that I've copied and digitized and shared with family. I have like his contracts and, and these letters of interest that were sent to him by scouts. Um, what was his position? He was a pitcher. He was yeah. a right-handed pitcher. And this is okay. before the days of the uh, radar gun. And um, he was... But he could throw the heat. He could really throw the, the heat, apparently. Yeah. He had probably a high 90s fastball. Wow. And um, he was still working... Tall like you? Tall. He was tall and lanky. And yeah. I was that way growing up as well. It's just I, I developed physically into football after it became mm. apparent that football would probably be my best opportunity to excel uh, athletically. I mean, I was 6'6", 235 pounds as a junior in high school, and I never even literally darken the door of a weight room. It's just a God, God given. given. Exactly. And mm-hmm. uh, genetically. And my, I mean, I look now back at my parents and my dad was six foot three professional athlete background. My mom, she was about five, seven, five, eight. She had won dance competitions in New York. She was very athletic. Her brothers, mm-hmm. uh, they were Polish and Slovakian and, the, okay. and her brothers were strong, like big shoulders, brawny, you know, big mm-hmm. Popeye forearms. So genetically it kind of came from both sides. Did your dad make it to the major leagues? So uh, he got signed as an 18-year-old, and uh, when he was 19, he went out to the New York Giants spring training uh, with the big league club. So I actually have a 1953 Giants yearbook with him uh, pictured with all the big leaguers. So that kind of shows you what they thought of him as a young pitching prospect. And uh, unfortunately... He ended up um, having a shoulder injury, and uh, at that time, they didn't have all these microscopic, arthroscopic procedures that they have now. It probably is an injury that they could have very easily corrected, and he could have been back to throwing that high 90s fastball again. But um, they had to give him like a zipper scar on the shoulder, open it up, and do all kinds of things back at that in that era. Okay. And his his, his fa- he he still played another couple few years, but his fastball just didn't have that pop anymore. Yeah. And I think that's what really differentiated him as a prospect. So let's shift gears and go back to you graduate high school. You go off to Penn State. I'm assuming this is still pre-conversion for you. Yes, it was. Yeah. So I graduated high school and um, I was, you know, pretty highly recruited. Mm-hmm. The the coach that I mentioned, who was the great mentor to me, uh, he was a tough, strong disciplinarian. He was a former Marine, mm. very highly respected in our community. He was the only wrestling coach that our high school had ever had. I came along in the late '80s in high school, mm-hmm. '86 to '90, and um, he started coaching wrestling in 1959, the year that the school opened. And then in 1962, became the head football coach. And he was still there as the head coach in the late 80s. So, um, you know, I, I had that male role model, but I still was, um, and, you know, I was getting recruited by, we, we went to the state championship my junior year. We had a good senior year, my good senior year as well. So, uh, you know, getting recruited by the, the powerhouse teams of that time, you know, the Alabamas, the Miamis, the mm-hmm. um, Penn States and Michigans and USC, even the USC's as far as California. But at the end of the day, um, 
a lot of the, you know, in the 1980s, I think I might have discussed this with you before, uh, the two best programs in the country actually were University of Miami Hurricanes mm-hmm. and Penn State. Penn State went to three national championships yeah. and they won two. Miami went to four national championships and they won three. So it was kind of like the Alabama and Clemson of that era, you right. know, as far as comparing it to modern uh, college football. And so, uh, you know, when I arrived on campus, though, I even though I had grown up with an awareness of God and an understanding that, you know, this world is about something bigger than just the here and now and just in my personal agendas, um, I kind of had a little bit of the attitude of like King Solomon. You know, here I am at college. It's my first taste of freedom. You know, I'm a full scholarship football athlete, and there's a lot of different opportunities that come along with that. And I kind of mm-hmm. thought, well, I'm going to take advantage of these opportunities and really enjoy them, kind of eat, drink, and be merry, and uh, live a bit for the world. And it just so happens that Joe Paterno, he knew I was a little bit of a wild, wild guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I had been, gotten in a little bit of trouble in high school at times, and he knew he knew about all those things background-wise. I don't know if it was the Irish in me. I had a tendency to get in fights sometimes. I even got in a fight one time at a, nothing I'm proud of necessarily, but at a, a fraternity at Penn State when I was just a recruit. Mm-hmm. And um, just was a little wild and a little uh, ornery and a little bit angry. I'm looking at you and your size and I'm thinking, who is so stupid enough to pick a fight with you? Or did you do the picking of the fight? Uh, It was a little combination of both, I think, you know, and you're always going to find one in the crowd that wants to think that they're going to take the big man down. And if they can do that, they're going to be, you know, the big man on campus themselves. Right. So, um, there was definitely like some anger in me though, Mm. and some, Mm -hmm. um, pain that I think Mm. I was still dealing with probably from things that happened when I grew up. Yeah. That was maybe running a little bit. And um, as I look back now, I understand these things a whole lot more. I didn't really sure. understand the dynamic of what was going on within me at the time. But I think uh, all those things were working together for good to prepare me to uh, have an open heart and a receptive heart to ultimate truth. So Joe Pa kind of kept you in line, so to speak, or made mm-hmm. sure that you were yeah, so it line. turns out he, he put me uh, he put me with a roommate that he knew was come from a good family that had a um, and that the kid had a good head on his shoulders, good academically, because he knew that I was a little bit of a risk academically, even I was kind of up and down in my performance in high school. I think he knew that I was like a bright kid and a, and a smart kid, but just was inconsistent with my effort. Mm-hmm. And um, so he put me with a young guy who actually just so happens the summer prior to showing up at campus had had a conversion experience, had came to know Christ at a uh, summer like retreat type of church camp. Okay. And, um, and really just right from the start of his relationship with the Lord, he was uh, really diving into it. I, I, you know, I, at night, you know, uh, <laughs> a lot of things to do on a college campus. And oftentimes he had a girlfriend that was going to another university somewhere. I can't remember where in Pennsylvania. And um, he'd often be reading scripture and he, he and his girlfriend would be praying and reading scripture. And I was just always very intellectually curious, I guess. I had a second grade teacher that put that on my, as a comment on my report card. Kyle is very intellectually curious. You know, maybe sixth grade, actually. So you're starting to see this curiosity. Like, I just always want to know the whys and the hows and the all that kind of thing, how things worked, you know? And um, so I would just a- ask him questions. You know, you sit there at 10 o'clock at night, you're trying to get to sleep. Maybe you got an hour before you fall asleep. And I'd be like, so what's it saying that, Bobby? You know, I, I always just kind of had this impression, like it was divine scale theory. As long as the good deeds outweighed the bad, somehow you'd be okay. You'd be in. And which is a misconception that sure. a lot of people have. I didn't really truly understand the gospel. And um, he started to explain to me, like, you know, the Roman road, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Bill Bright. I, it was a campus crusade type ministry that was feeding into so his the four life. Spiritual so it was laws. very evangelical, yeah. you know, four spiritual laws and things like that. So um, I just was intrigued by it. And I, he, I said, and, I, and sometimes I had questions for him that he's like, you know, that's a good question. I don't really know the answer to that. He was humble enough to know that he was a young believer himself. He didn't know all the answers. So he's like, why don't you come out to the team Bible study? I 
didn't even know the team had a Bible study. And mm-hmm. he's like, there's a chaplain. He runs these Bible studies. It's on like, I don't know if it was Monday or Tuesday night or something like that. And so we, I'd go to these and um, we started opening up the scriptures and talking about what it said and how, how to apply it to our life and what are the implications and meaning of, of all this. And then I started having individual like one-on-one, I guess you call it discipleship meetings with this uh, chaplain who was a great uh, man. And I still, you know, keep in touch with him occasionally to this day. And, um, and little by little, I felt like, you know, the scales of my eyes and, and my heart were progressively falling off. I can't mm-hmm. necessarily point to like a specific date where, the, you know, I could say this was the day, this was the time and the hour. It was just a progressive um, conviction that, wow, this is all true. This is all the reality of, of the world and the universe and our origins and eternity. And so you came to recognize that that you needed a savior mm-hmm. and Christ yeah. was the way. And as far as the Roman road, I mean, Romans three twenty three. you didn't, I didn't feel like I had to be very strongly convinced that that was the, the, the reality that all have sinned and fall short of the mm-hmm. glory of God. And, uh, but thankfully Romans five, eight goes on to say, mm-hmm. but God, but God demonstrates his love for us. And that even though we're sinners, Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and that kind of made intuitive sense. I thought to myself, you know, if he was just a good teacher and we're just supposed to obey his teachings and about being good enough, well, it was senseless then. It was pointless for him to go to the cross. What was that all about? Well, but that's the essence of the gospel. The essence mm-hmm. of the gospel is what you couldn't do. You could not be good enough. Even our righteous acts are as filthy rags in his sight. He took on all of that burden, you know, paid the penalty. As we know, it's, you know, propitiation, I guess, is the fancy $10 word yeah. that theologians use. And that substitutionary death is what it essentially was all about. And that, that, that wrath that we deserved was all poured out on him at the cross that day at Calvary. And, um, and really, I mean, I think in the early stages, I was overwhelmed um, to think that a father had that type of love for me, you know, mm. and that Jesus talked about him so tenderly and used the word Abba, Father. And um, that had great appeal to me. And it even, sure. you know, strikes me with emotion now because uh, I had a hard time believing that. Mm-hmm. In light of... All that it yeah, happened. You yeah, I mean, I know now, you know, I look back on letters that my dad had sent, you know, myself and our, the other kids in the family and stuff like that. And I can see it, but, you know, you don't always feel it necessarily when you don't have the physical presence. And that's, um, it's very challenging for a young guy. And sometimes yeah. you can feel like maybe there's something wrong with you or that you're broken. And, 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 you know, ultimately we are all broken, but it doesn't mean we're not lovable and uh, worthy of love. Yeah. You came to this realization and now somewhere along the line and your testimony is so similar to so many people. A lot of people want that moment where they look back and say, I prayed the sinner's prayer or whatever. And that's wonderful for some people. That's their testimony. But for many of us, it wasn't an exact moment, like you say, a day or a time or a specific prayer. It was a growing realization. So often that happens for people who are raised in homes where they're taught about the Trinity. They're brought to church. And so you kind of think you're in and then you come to a dawning realization you're not and you need Jesus. And it's kind of confusing. It was for me. Mm-hmm. can't pinpoint the exact moment I was saved. But as I encourage people, because some people get discouraged about that. I don't, I can't remember exact time when I was saved. Am I really saved? And I said, well, I don't remember when I was born, but I know I was born mm-hmm. in the same way. You may not know the exact time you were born again, but you know you've been born again. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the initial, I guess, subjective um, means by which I knew something had changed was just uh, I had a new sensitivity to sin, a new awareness mm-hmm. of um, 
a different type of life occurring, springing to life within me. Um, the scriptures actually made sense where they seemed to just be jumbled to some degree before. I didn't, you know, they didn't, couldn't make heads or tails of it. And there are definitely, especially as a young believer, some parts that are a bit more complex and it's beneficial to have some guidance and leadership to take you through it. But at the same time, so much of it started to make uh, a, a lot of sense. And I started to even develop a great desire to actually study it, which I know would never have come from in and of myself. Yeah. So what you're just describing is is what we know the scripture teaches is regeneration, the, the fruit of regeneration. God gives us, takes away our stony heart, replaces it with a heart of flesh. He takes our mind, he opens our eyes to the truth. We start to see the word of God. And, and as I like to teach our people here, he changes our want to also. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, I'm wanting yeah. to know more about the Lord. I'm wanting to do the right thing. And maybe I did want to do the right thing when I was younger, but now that it's a, it's a different kind of wanting to do the right thing. And, you know, on the opposite end of the wanting to do the right thing is not wanting to do the wrong thing because yeah. you are now in a relationship that your, your, your desires have changed to where you now want to please him. And so I was very stubborn, you know, and I, for a while there, because college is a difficult place to try to, you know, sure. not only initiate, but also grow a faith relationship in, in God, you know, there's so many competing interests. And especially and, you know, when you're in your specific case, you're an athlete, mm-hmm. you're a jock on campus in the most important sport on campus. Yeah. I mean, and you know, you still have your flesh to deal with, right? Yeah. That sinful nature, it doesn't just, it doesn't, it's, it's dealt a death blow Mm -hmm. there at regeneration, but it's still somewhat alive and active to the extent that you Mm -hmm. feed it, you know, and uh, I was used to and habitually kind of feeding that flesh, you know, all through my life until up until that point. I mean, I had habits and desires and thoughts that didn't necessarily die overnight and that took some time, you know, so that was then you talk about progressive sanctification and things mm-hmm. like that. And so I kind of wrestled with the back and forth of still trying to keep one foot in the world and in the party scene and things like that. And the girls, whatever, you know, whatever it may have been. And it's all just common unto man, right? I mean, things yeah. that uh, people have dealt with for all of time. But uh, eventually I got to that point where I just, um, I couldn't keep running. I couldn't keep with one foot in the world. I just mm-hmm. was feeling too hypocritical and too convicted. I was like, you know, God has just, I, I came to the realization that he just just given me too much to uh, continue to try to, um, you know, try to sort of get every bit of satisfaction I can out of this world. It's just, it's not satisfying me anymore. It's just not giving me the same feelings and sensation that it once did. And uh, it's actually making me feel grieved deep within. Mm -hmm. And I now know that that's obviously, that's a sign that the spirit is in you. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is living in you. And so over time you want to live holy. Yeah. He desires that we be set apart and Mm -hmm. not in the world, but not of it. And I was kind of thinking that I could be in the world and a little bit of it, but still, you know, have, have my cake and eat it too, so to speak. But it was just creating such internal turmoil that eventually as you know time went by and I got to my latter half of my career uh, at Penn State you know and playing there and uh, going to school there that I just started to say you know what he kind of broke me and through circumstantially through some different things that happened and just said okay you take it you take it all because I obviously am a a blind mule and I need you to just take the reins and go ahead and sort of lead here Mm, that's good well, we're short on time, so I'm going to put a wrap on this. Kyle, thank you for sharing your testimony. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the intro to these weekly interviews talk about how we interview ordinary people to see how our extraordinary God is at work in their lives and what he's done in their lives. And as I've already mentioned, I'm sitting here with a man who many would say, well, he's not ordinary. For one, his size alone says, you know, six foot, seven inch, six, 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 yeah. yeah. 280 pounds of muscle, played in the NFL for 13 seasons 
played in the Super Bowl. Kyle's had a charmed life in that way that a lot of people would aspire to and say, wow, you know, he's an extraordinary person. And from a human perspective, he is. Kyle, you're an extraordinary man in terms of what you've accomplished in life, getting your law degree, et cetera. But it's still true. He's an ordinary person. From a human perspective, he's extraordinary. From God's perspective, God looks down and he sees all of us the same. Lost in need of a savior. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God, as Kyle's already mentioned from Romans 3.23. There's none righteous, Paul repeats from the Psalms in Romans 3.10. There's none righteous. No, not one. All of us need a Savior. And that's why we do these weekly interviews. One of the main reasons is to get testimonies out there for you, dear listener, to think about. Where are you at with Christ? I want to challenge you, if you don't know him, that you would seek him and you would find him. He's there and he's able to save. He's willing to save. Recognize your sinfulness. Call upon Christ to save you. He went to the cross. Kyle did a great job talking about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He took the wrath of God that you and I deserve. He took it on that cross. He was buried. He rose from the grave three days later, conquering death and hell. And if you would repent of your sin, place your trust in Christ, you will be saved. Kyle Brady's been our guest. Kyle, thanks for coming on. We're going to hang around a little bit, talk some more. We'll uh, produce another episode here in just a minute. We're going to talk sports more. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sound of Truth. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review it. Also, tell your friends about it. Thanks. Music is by Canon and is used by permission. Sound of Truth podcast is produced in collaboration with Harvest Jacksonville. It is copyrighted by Brett A. Mirani, 2022.